Welcome to tape number 10 of Notes on the Apocalypse by David Steele. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. There is no copyright on this material, and we encourage you to reproduce it and pass it on to your friends. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, T6L3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. If you do have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. And now to our reading of Notes on the Apocalypse by David Steele, which we pray you find to be a great blessing and which we hope draws you near to the Lord Jesus Christ. Continuing on in our reading, chapter 16, verses 17 to 21 of the Apocalypse. And the seventh angel poured out his vial into the air, and there came a great voice out of the temple of heaven and from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were voices and thunders and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake, such as was not since men were upon the earth, so mighty an earthquake and so great. And the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And great Babylon came into remembrance before God to give unto her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. And every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. And there fell upon men a great hail out of heaven, every stone about the weight of a talent. And men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, for the plague thereof was exceedingly great. The seventh angel poured out his vial into the air. The devil is emphatically styled the prince of the power of the air. Ephesians 2, 2. All the preceding vials fell upon their respective and successive objects, the several parts of the symbolic system. But this vial of consummation affects the whole of that system at once. The dragon, the beast, and his image, together with the false prophet, all the kingdoms of this world and the glory of them, which the God, little g, of this world claimed as his own and offered to our Lord Jesus Christ in the days of his humiliation, Luke 4, 6, and 7. All will be destroyed forever. He who gave commission by a great voice, verse 1, to these angels, now that they are, have fulfilled his pleasure, solemnly declares his approbation. It is done. The Lord Christ had solemnly sworn that in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he would begin to sound, the mystery of God should be finished. Chapter 10, verses 6 and 7. He is faithful to his oath. It is done. Hence, it is undeniably evident that the seventh trumpet agrees in time with the seventh vial, and it is equally evident that the events which they represent are yet future. What was obscurely intimated as following the sounding of the seventh trumpet, the nations were angry, and thy wrath is come, chapter 11, verse 18, is here amplified, for the voices, thunders, and lightnings are the visible and sensible tokens of the wrath of God, 
Exodus 19.16, and Hebrews 12.21. Next follows an earthquake, the usual symbol of revolution, but this one is without parallel. The earthquake followed the opening of the sixth seal, chapter 6.6, when paganism was overthrown in the Roman Empire by Constantine, and another earthquake marked the close of the second woe, chapter 11, verse 13, when the tenth part of the city fell. But this concussion is so mighty and so great as to divide the great city into three parts, or rival factions. Next, the cities of the nations fell, revolted from their wanted allegiance, and the great Babylon came in remembrance before God, who seemed to have forgotten both her and his saints, whom she had so long and so cruelly persecuted. At the fall of Rome pagan, mountains and islands were only moved out of their places, chapter 6.14. But at the fall of Rome papal, every island fled away and the mountains were not found, the former indicating transition, the latter utter destruction. The fall of hail is to be viewed as accompanying, not following, the fall of cities, flight of islands and mountains. As hailstones are symbolic of divine judgments, and as they may be allusion here to another of the plagues of Egypt, Exodus 9.18, so more especially may the facts of history supply the figurative language with which the judgments of the vials terminate. If any escape the destroying sword in the battle of Armageddon, they are overtaken by these ponderous hailstones out of heaven, even as the Lord cast down great stones from heaven upon the five kings of the Amorites, so that more died with hailstones than they whom the children of Israel slew with the sword. Joshua 10, verse 11. The result is as before. The survivors remain impenitent, as history supplies no instance of literal hailstones of a talent weight 60 pounds or, as others, a hundred so the symbol represents this as the most tremendous of all the judgments of God. Chapter 14, verse 20. Thus, we have seen that the last trumpet and the last vial combine in the final perdition of Babylon the Great. Chapter 17. This chapter may be considered introductory to the 18th, or as a digression in the narrative to explain more fully the integral parts of the complex, mystical, moral person so often called Great Babylon, whose destruction was so awfully presented in the foregoing chapter. Verses 1 and 2. And there came one of the seven angels which had the seven vials, and talked with me, saying unto me, Come hither, and I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. The angel that talked with the apostle was probably the seventh. The great whore is the symbol of the idolatrous church of Rome, which broke her marriage covenant with Christ. Idolatry is spiritual whoredom. Hosea 6, verse 10. Her sitting upon many waters is explained, verse 15. The kings of the earth, are her paramours, and their subjects are partakers in the crime made drunk. Verses 3 to 5. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast, full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color, and decked with gold, 
and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand, full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. And upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. Verses 3 through 5. The scarlet-colored beast is the Roman Empire professing the Christian religion, the modeled by the Romish church, for the woman sits upon the beast, guiding and controlling all its motions. James 3 3. The raiment of both is at once imperial and bloody, purple and scarlet. The raiment of this woman is decked with precious metal, stones, and pearls, after the usual attire of a harlot. Ezekiel 16, verse 17. The cup alludes to the practice of harlots giving love potions to their paramours, very expensive of the indulgences, absolutions, preferments, etc., by which the Church of Rome attracts disciples to her idolatry. The nations have drunken of her wine, therefore the nations are mad. Jeremiah 51, verse 7. The inscription upon her forehead is after the manner of shameless prostitutes, avowing Rome's whoredom of idolatry, monasticism, monasticism, excuse me, indulgences to sin as essential to religion, a mystery of iniquity, by which the man of sin thinks to change times and laws. Daniel seven twenty four and twenty five and eleven thirty six and thirty seven. Verse six. And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. This woman, Christian church, was drunken with the blood of saints and martyrs. Of course, such a sight would give rise to the apostles' astonishment. The attempt of popish writers to apply this to pagan Rome's persecutions is demonstrably false, for John could not wonder at the persecution of the church when he himself was an actual victim in Patmos, chapter 1, verse 9. Verses 7 to 11. And the angel said unto me, Wherefore didst thou marvel? I will tell thee the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carrieth her, which hath the seven heads and ten horns. The beast that thou sawest was and is not and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit and go into perdition. And they that dwell on the earth shall wonder, whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, when they behold the beast that was and is not and yet is. And here is the mind which hath wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. And there are seven kings, five are fallen, and one is, and the other is not yet come. And when he cometh, he must continue a short space. And the beast that was, and is not, even he is the eighth, and is of the seven, and goeth into perdition. The angel explains the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carrieth her. The beast, the civil power, carrieth, sustains the woman, the church as the church controls the state, verse 3, chapter 13, verse 11 and 16. The beast that was and is not and yet is, is a mysterious personage as well as the woman. Therefore all who dwell upon the earth, not in heaven, wonder, chapter 13, verses 3 to 6. That is, all the vassals of the Antichrist, distinguished from those whose names are in the book of life, the two witnesses, the seven heads of the beast signify seven mountains on which Rome literally stands, namely Capitoline, Palatine, 
a Valentine, a Ventine, excuse me, A-V-E-N-T-I-N-E, Esqualine, Coaline, Viminol, and Quirinol. Here the woman and Rome are manifestly identical, the spiritual empire, but the heads of the beast have a double meaning, for they also signify seven kings or successive forms of civil government. At the time when John wrote, five had fallen. They had passed into actual history, one of them existing, namely the emperor, in the name of, in the person of Domitian, as is supposed. This is the imperial head whose deadly wound was healed. Chapter 13, verse 3. The seventh head was not yet come in the apostle's time, but on his appearance he was to continue a short space. The papacy is not the seventh head. He is a horn. Daniel 7, verses 8 and 20. But a horn of the beast cannot identify with the beast himself. It is otherwise with a head, which is the form of government over the whole empire. The patriciate succeeded the imperial, being the seventh head, and only of short duration, about fifty years. Charlemagne was crowned emperor of the Romans in the year 800, and so the patriciate terminated. This is the eighth, which is of the seven, and goeth into perdition. The septimo-octave head is so variable, sometimes acknowledged as residing in Austria, then in France, etc., that for hundreds of years the great republic of the nations, all bestial, are at a loss to identify the visible head in whom resides the, pres the presidency. Hence, the balance of power is so perplexing and difficult to adjust. Were there an acknowledged imperial and despotic head, this obvious difficulty could not exist. But the beast is not. Nevertheless, the arbitrary power of the horns of the beast is sensibly felt in every part of the Roman Empire. The beast is and will continue till the time of the end. Daniel 12, verse 9. For the Roman Empire must be equal in duration with the life and actings of the two witnesses, 1260 years. Verses 12 to 14. And the ten horns which thou sawest are ten kings, which have received no kingdom as yet, but receive power as kings one hour with the beast. These have one mind, and shall give their power and strength unto the beast. These shall make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb shall overcome them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and they that are with him are called and chosen and faithful. The ten horns signify ten kings, or regal or civil sovereignties, into which the empire was to be partitioned after John's time, and which we have seen was affected by the first four trumpets, chapters 8, verses 7 to 12. These received power one hour with the beast, rather at one time or contemporaneously with the beast, for they are his horns and are of one mind, giving their power and strength, all their resources to him. These shall make war with the lamb, the mediator, headed by the dragon, and instigated, instigated by the beast and his image, chapter 12, verse 7, and chapter 13, verse 7. Verse 15. And he saith unto me, The waters which thou sawest, where the horse, where the horse sitteth, are peoples, and multitudes, and nations, and tongues. The waters, controlled by the whore, are the multitudes whom the apostate church of Rome commands to volunteer in the wars of the kings against the Lamb. Verse 16. And the ten horns which thou sawest upon the beast, these shall hate the whore, 
and shall make her desolate and naked, and shall eat her flesh and burn her with fire. What a surprising change, yet how natural. Second Samuel 18, verse 15. The punishment is that which was adjudged in the case of a priest's daughter. Leviticus 21, verse 9. The ten horns here are to be understood generally, not universally. Chapter 18, verse 9, and chapter 19, 19. Some of those princes that have contributed most to the aggrandizement of the Romish church and have been most devoted to her religion as the ruler of France, the eldest son of the church, their Catholic majesties of Austria, Spain, Portugal, may be among the first in executing divine judgments on Babylon. Make her desolate and naked, eat her flesh, that is, withdraw the land's endowments which enriched her monasteries and fattened her bishops, priests, and others. Verse 17, For God hath put in their hearts to fulfill his will, and to agree and give their kingdom unto the beast, until the words of God shall be fulfilled. Here we are led into the secret cause of the wonderful change in the policy of the horns, God hath put it into their hearts. They just do to the great whore whatsoever God's hand and counsel determined before to be done. Acts 4.28 See also Exodus 7 verse 3 Genesis 45 verse 8 and Genesis 50 verse 20 and Psalm 105 verse 25 verse 18 and the woman which thou sawest is that great city which reigneth over the kings of the earth. This woman is the great city, not literally the city of Rome, but the imperial ecclesiastical jurisdiction to which authority intoxicated kings and their subjects bowed in slavish submission and whose bloody decrees they had executed for 1260 years upon many of their best subjects and fellow creatures. Chapter 18 verses 1 to 3 and after these things I saw another angel come down from heaven having great power and the earth was lightened with his glory and he cried mightily with a strong voice saying Babylon the great is fallen is fallen and is become the habitation of devils and the hold of every foul spirit and a cage of every unclean and hateful bird for all nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication and the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth are waxed rich through the abundance of her delicacies. After the apostle had described Babylon in the preceding chapter, he saw another angel. This seems to be the Lord Christ, the same as in chapter 10, verse 1. He confirmeth the word of his servants, chapter 19, verse 8. Excuse me, chapter 14, verse 8 that Babylon the Great has fallen and is adequately punished for her crimes, which are enumerated. Verse 3. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, and be ye not partakers of her sins, and that ye receive not of her plagues. The phrase, my people, indicates that the speaker is not a created angel whose warning is here given with a voice from heaven. This call of the Lord Jesus has been addressed to his elect ever since the revelation of the man of sin. It has been obeyed but partially hitherto, but upon the sounding of the seventh trumpet, his Holy Spirit will give the call unusual efficacy. Verses 5 to 8. 
For her sins have reached unto heaven, and God hath remembered her iniquities. Reward her even as she rewarded you, and double unto her double according to her works. In the cup which he hath filled, fill to her double. How much she had glorified herself and lived deliciously. So much torment and sorrow give her. For she saith in her heart, I sit as a queen and am no widow and shall see no sorrow. Therefore shall her plagues come in one day, death and mourning and famine, and she shall be utterly burnt with fire, for strong is the Lord God who judges her. Her sins have reached unto heaven, and now she is to be visited with condign punishment, although it seemed both to her and God's own people long delayed. God hath remembered her iniquities. There is reference to ancient Babylon's punishment and the law of retaliation. Jeremiah 50, verse 15, Psalm 137, verse 8, Isaiah 47, verses 1 to 8. Her punishment is destruction from the Almighty. Strong is the Lord God who judges her. Verses 9 through 19. And the kings of the earth who have committed fornication and lived deliciously with her shall bewail her and lament for her for when they shall see the smoke of her burning excuse me when they shall see the smoke of her burning standing afar off for the fear of her torment saying alas alas that great city Babylon that mighty city for in one hour is thy judgment come and the merchants of the earth shall weep and mourn over her for no man buyeth their merchandise any more the merchandise of gold and silver and precious stones and of pearls and fine linen and purple and silk and scarlet and all thion wood and all manner of vessels of ivory and the manner of vessels of most precious wood and of brass and iron and marble and cinnamon and odors and ointments and frankincense and wine and oil and fine flour and wheat and beast and sheep and horses and chariots and slaves and souls of men and the fruits that thy soul lusted after are departed from thee, and all things which were dainty and goodly are departed from thee, and thou shalt find them no more at all. The merchants of these things which were made rich by her shall stand afar off for the fear of her torment, weeping and wailing, and saying, Alas, alas, that great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls. For in one hour so great riches is come to naught, and every shipmaster and all the company and ships and sailors and as many as trade by sea stood afar off and cried when they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, What city is like unto this great city? And they shall cast dust on their heads and cried, weeping and wailing, saying, Alas, alas, that great city wherein were made rich all that had ships in the sea, by reason of her costliness, for in one hour she is made desolate. At the fall of Babylon, some of the kings that had been her supporters will lament for her while utterly unable to protect her and afraid of partaking of her plagues. It may be proper to remark that the word translated alas and repeated in this chapter is the same in the Greek text as that which is rendered woe in chapter 13, verse 13 from which fact we are to infer that the fall of mystical Babylon described in this chapter comes under the last three or probably the seventh trumpet. 
that the Turkish Empire is to be overthrown by the sixth trumpet or second woe and gradually exhausted by the sixth vial hardly admits of a doubt, but it, is not necessarily, it does not necessarily follow that said trumpet and vial are to terminate when that judgment ends. Each trumpet and vial may continue its effects for some time after the following one commences. Kings, merchants, and shipmasters are mentioned as chief mourners while they are helpless spectators of this judgment. In all this narrative, there is plain allusion to the language of Old Testament prophets who predicted the destruction of the enemies of God's people as Babylon, Tyre, and Egypt. All these powerful kingdoms have been made desolate for their idolatry and cruelty, and thus history comes in aid of prophecy to confirm the faith of the saints. The moral government of the Most High is uniform, and he will execute vengeance upon his and Zion's and penitent enemies. The merchandise and lamentations are borrowed from Ezekiel 30, uh, 27. In verse 13, there is mention made of the persons of men as part of the wares of the markets of Tyre, and we find slaves, bodies, and souls of men among the commodities for sale in modern Babylon. How can we, in view of historic facts, exempt the United States of North America from complicity in the crimes of mystic Babylon as one of her dependencies? While earthly politicians, sustained by eminent divines, proclaimed to the world in gushy oratory that America was an asylum for the oppressed of all nations, the land of the free and the home of the brave, Perhaps there never was a more effectual refutation of this popular sentiment accompanied with a more biting sarcasm than that which was uttered in derisive song by the sable, coughed chain gang in the streets of the national capital. Hail, Columba, hap, hail Columbia, happy land, all who are acquainted with the internal and political history of the United States know that the adherents adherents of the man of sin always gave their suffrages for the support and continuance of that cursed traffic. The great variety of the articles of merchandise here enumerated is calculated to impress the reader with the idea of the wealth, luxury, splendor, and self-indulgence of the metropolis of the idolatrous Roman Empire, the mother and mistress of all churches. The prophetic declaration, however, with feigned words, shall they make merchandise of you, Second Peter 2.3, is not confined to the Romish communion. This traffic in souls pervades all the streets of symbolic Babylon. The overthrow is sudden and unexpected in one hour. This is thrice repeated, verses 10, 17, and 19. In verse 18, this spiritual Sodom is compared to her prototype, in her fearful end, they saw the smoke of her burning. Genesis 19, verse 28. Verse 20. Rejoice over her, thou heaven, and ye holy apostles and prophets, for God hath avenged you on her. Judgments on the impenitent enemies of God and of the saints are mercies to the church. Psalm 136, verses 15 to 20. And consequently, while the former are lamenting for the fall of the great city, the latter are exhorted to rejoice in her ruin. All the members of the church in general, and holy apostles and prophets in particular, the apostles are daily worshipped at Rome in their supposed likenesses, the work of the cunning artificer, 
But here they are mentioned as rejoicing in the destruction of the idolatrous sinners who so greatly dishonor them and detracted from the glory of God. As there is joy in heaven over one sinner that repenteth, so there over the destruction, so is there over the destruction of the impenitent. Jeremiah 51 verse 48. So let all thine enemies perish, O Lord. Judges 5:31. Verses 21 to 23. And a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and cast it into the sea, saying, Thus with violence shall that great city Babylon be thrown down and shall be found no more at all. And the voice of harpers and musicians and of pipers and trumpeters shall be heard no more at all in thee. And no craftsman of whatsoever craft he be shall be found any more in thee. And the sound of a millstone shall be heard no more at all in thee, and the light of a candle shall shine no more at all in thee, and the voice of the bridegroom and of the bride shall be heard no more at all in thee. For thy merchants were the great men of the earth, for by thy sorceries were all nations deceived. The emblem of a great millstone cast into the sea is a very striking indication of the sudden and irretrievable ruin of mystic Babylon and contains an allusion to Jeremiah 51, verses 63 and 64. The removal of musicians, craftsmen, candles from this devoted city as they plainly point to the statuary, music, and paintings which have attracted multitudes to the idolatry, superstition, and harlotry of anti-Christian Rome emphatically proclaims the utter and perpetual desolation of papal Rome. The language is borrowed from Isaiah 24, verse 8, Jeremiah 25, verse 10, Ezekiel 26, verse 13. Her merchants being the great men of the earth and the sorceries by which the nations are deceived very plainly indicate the successful traffic of the mother of harlots, the church of Rome. Verse 24, And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all that were slain upon the earth. When the Lord maketh inquisition, inquisition for blood, the blood of all that were slain upon earth, for Christ's sake, will be found in the skirts of this Jezebel. Papal Rome has shed more innocent blood than pagan Rome, than Babylon, Tyre, and Egypt, and by her relentless cruelty to prophets and saints, ministers and members of the witnessing church, she has endorsed all as murderous persecutions from Abel down to the present day. Luke 10, 50 and 51, and Acts 7, 52. Now when we contemplate in the light of prophecy, confirmed by authentic history, the numberless, aggravated, and long-continuing crimes of Babylon the Great, her pride, verse 7, her cruelty, verse 3, her luxury, her tyranny, her idolatry, her fornication, her impenitence in all, can we hesitate to acquiesce in the righteousness of her final doom, or to join in the plaudits of the saints in the next chapter? This ends the reading of side one. Please turn the tape over at this time and continue listening on side two. Chapter 19, verses 1 to 4. And after these things I heard a great voice of much people in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments, for he hath judged the great whore, which did corrupt the earth with her fornication, and hath avenged the blood of his servants at her hand. 
And again they said, Alleluia, and her smoke rose up forever and ever. And the four and twenty elders and the four beasts fell down and worshipped God that sat on the throne, saying, Amen, Alleluia. The frequent repetition of the Hebrew word Alleluia in this chapter may perhaps be an intimation of something which specially relates to the Jews. The perpetuity of the covenant made with Abraham, renewed to Isaac and confirmed to Jacob, Psalm 105, verse 9 and 10, is clearly taught in the scriptures. Genesis 17:7, 7, Acts 2:39, Romans 4:13, Galatians 3:14 and 29. It has already been intimated, chapter 16, verse 15, that the sounding of the seventh trumpet, at the sound of the seventh trumpet, there were great voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he, Christ, shall reign forever and ever. Beholding the overthrow of Babylon, all the people of God were invited, chapter 18, verse 20, to rejoice over her, for her downfall was effected under the last trumpet and vial. With that invitation, the saints here joyfully complied. Much people in heaven implies a great augmentation of their number, and as heaven signifies the church on earth, we are warranted to expect a rapid increase of her membership as a consequence of the sounding of the seventh trumpet at the pouring out of the third vial, chapter 16, verse 7. The angel of the altar said, True and righteous are thy judgments. The very people, excuse me, the very same sentiment is repeated here by the much people, all the saints. Thus they recognized the faithfulness and justice of God as he heard and answered the cry of the souls under the altar, chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. For he had been now avenged, for he had now avenged their blood and that of their brethren that had been killed as they were. Upon them that dwell on the earth, the population of mystic Babylon, Psalm 137, verses 8 and 9. And again they said, Alleluia, and her smoke rose up forever and ever like that of Sodom. In all this, the ministry and members of the whole church cordially join, adding their hearty and solemn Amen. For this protracted joy and exulting praise, two causes seem to be in operation. God's judgment on Babylon and His mercy on Zion. Both are matters of praise. Psalm 101, verse 1. And a voice came out of the throne, saying, Praise our God, all ye servants, and ye that fear Him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Let us be glad and rejoice, and give honor to Him. For the marriage of the Lamb is come, and His wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. And he saith unto me, Write, Blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, These are the true sayings of God. This happy company are called upon to renew their song. The call seems to come from one, someone who is authorized to speak with authority out of the throne. All the servants of God are invited and all appear to respond a great multitude. This is the most animated of all the examples of praise recorded in this book. It is compared to the rushing of waters down a cataract 
at the, as the roaring of the sea or the rolling of thunder in the heavens. It is indeed the voice of them that shout for mastery. And all the people shout with a great shout, for the Lord hath given them the city. Alleluia! Praise ye the Lord, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Thou wilt perform the truth, the truth to Jacob and the mercy to Abraham, which thou hast sworn unto our fathers from the days of old. These joyful victors encourage each other to prolong their acclamations. Let us be glad and rejoice, for the marriage of the Lamb is come. And what can that be but the recalling of the Jews? This is the day of our New Testament Solomon's espousals and the day of the gladness of his heart. Song of Solomon 3, verse 11. Not only the Jews, but the great majority of professing Christians during the 1260 years of Antichrist usurpations have refused to submit themselves to the righteousness of God. Romans 10, verse 3. The kings of the earth also have fostered the pride and profligacy of the great whore instead of the bride of the lamb. The lewd woman and the woman in the wilderness hitherto are now to be distinguished. As their character and conduct are different, so is their raiment. The gaudy and splendid attire of the former is in striking contrast with that of the latter, which is that of a woman professing godliness. Chapter 17, verse 4, and 1 Timothy 2.10 To her was granted precious words, for the Lamb's wife of herself was utterly destitute. Chapter 3, verse 17 The Jews, in the day of their Messiah's power, Psalm 110, verse 3, convinced of the law as transgressors, will be brought to adopt the language of their own prophet. Isaiah 61, verse 10, He hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness. The righteousness of Christ imputed for justification and the Spirit of Christ imparted for sanctification, together with good works, the visible evidence of both, will constitute the fine linen, clean and white, which is the righteousness of saints. This is, after all, a more costly as well as more comely attire than that of the mother of harlots. Psalm 45, verses 13 and 14. And he saith, that is, some say, the angel, chapter 17, verse 1 and 7, or chapter 18, verse 1, but we are rather to view him as the same who brings all these messages from Christ to the Apostle, chapter 1, 1. The angel pronounces those blessed, the angel pronounces those blessed who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. In the beginning of the New Testament, Testament dispensation, the invitation was to a dinner, Matthew 22, verse 4. The day will have been far spent at the sounding of the seventh trumpet when Jews and Gentiles are called to this supper. It will be the last great feast of the church militant. But who shall live to partake of the banquet? The angel gives his solemn attestation to these sayings. Verse 10. And I fell at his feet to worship him. And he said unto me, See thou do it not. I am thy fellow servant and of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. This is a surprising incident, an aged, experienced, and holy man, an apostle, falling down to worship the angel, and we are told that he relapsed into the same sin, 22, chapter 22, verses 8 and 9. 
Like Peter on the mount, who wist not what to say, or Paul in the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, he could not tell. Mark 9, 6, or 2 Corinthians 12, verse 3. John had become overpowered by the visions and transported by the high praise which he saw and heard. The like effects were experienced by Daniel, chapter 8, verse 18, and chapter 10, verses 8 and 17. This sin of idolatry by the apostle was doubtless permitted by the Lord in order to furnish occasion for a testimony from the angel against the voluntary humility and worshiping of angels. Colossians 2, verse 18, practiced by the papists and to leave them without excuse. The abrupt language of the angel in this and a subsequent case is strongly expressive of resentment. See not. Such is the curt, sententious utterance in the Greek text. He assigns the best reason and strongest argument against idolatry. I am thy fellow servant, a creature as well as yourself. We are servants of one Lord, who alone is the object of our devotion. Worship God. This is the best counsel, enforced by the most cogent reasoning, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. This sentence may be read, The spirit of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus, and it will be equally true. To give him all the prophets witness, Acts 10.43, for the spirit of Christ was in them, 1 Peter 1.11. And this fact is well known to holy angels, Ephesians 3, verse 10, and 1 Peter 1, verse 12. So this angel plainly declares, verses 11 to 16, And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Heaven opened once more, allows the apostle to look upon Messiah the Prince going forth to fresh conquest, As he began, chapter 6, verse 2, so he continues in righteousness to judge and make war, not as the ambitious tyrants who destroy the earth, chapter 11, verse 18. He has here three names, faithful and true, the word of God, king of kings, and lord of lords. Yet he has a name written which no man knoweth but he himself. His infinite essence and eternal generation are incomprehensible by angels and men. He is, however, known by his mediatorial titles, faithful and true, to all covenant engagements. As the prophet of the church, he declares the Father, making known the word of God, and his lordship is at once a warning to his enemies and security to his friends. On his head were many crowns, emblematical of his numerous victories over the princes of the earth, especially the Ten Kings, chapter 17, verse 14. His eyes are a flame of fire going through the whole earth in every place, Proverbs 15, verse 3. Render it impossible for his enemies to elude discovery, 
Jeremiah 23, verse 24. His vesture dipped in blood refers to his victories over all his malicious and impenitent foes. Isaiah 63, verses 1 to 3, and Revelation 14, verse 20. His armies on white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, are uniformed like their leader. Chapter 12, verse 7. For they that are with him are called and chosen and faithful. Chapter 17, verse 14. The weapon with which he smites the nations are, that oppose him is the sharp sword, an emblem of his ruinous and avenging justice. For he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. On his thigh, where he wears his sword, there is a legible inscription indicating his universal and rightful authority. Verses 17 to 21. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather yourself together unto the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, and the flesh of captains, and the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses, and of them that sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. And I saw the beast, and the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him, that sat on a horse and against his army. And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into a lake of fire, burning with brimstone. And the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceeded out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. The position of the angel standing in the sun and crying with a loud voice represents that Messiah's judgment would be visible to all the world, and the extent of the invitation to the fowls indicates the vast slaughter of his enemies. Babylon being utterly burned with fire, chapter 17, verse 16, and chapter 18, verse 8, as a suitable punishment of an apostate church, the flesh of kings of captains, of mighty men, as a sacrifice to the divine justice, is given as a feast to the fowls of heaven. The allusion here is to the destruction of Gog and Magog. Ezekiel 39, verses 17 to 20. These enemies of the saints are to appear and be overthrown before the millennium, and although John borrows the names of these enemies, chapter 20, verse 8, they are not the same as those of Ezekiel, the one appearing before, the other after the thousand years. We have often found the enemies of the church called in the apocalypse by the names of persecutors under the Old Testament, Babylon, Egypt. We may consider the fowls, the birds of prey, as symbolizing the kings who retaliate upon Babylon, as in chapter 17, verse 16, or rather as the Lord's people reclaiming their own, of which they had been unjustly and long deprived, spoiling the Egyptians, Exodus 12:36. Some suppose that the confederacy of the kings of the earth with the beast, verse 19, is a distinct attack from that mentioned in chapter 17, verse 14. But perhaps it is safer to consider it as the same, only more distinctly and fully exhibited here. Indeed, it seems from the agency of the false prophet to be the same event as that under the sixth vial, chapter 16, verse 14, preparing to the battle of Armageddon. 
the Lord Jesus as captain of the Lord's host and the army of heaven following him are all of them on white horses appear to be on the one side and the beast with the kings of the earth instigated by the false prophet on the other. The rank and file, like their leaders, are described as having received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. But the beast of the earth, chapter 13, verse 11, causes all ranks to receive the mark and worship the image of the beast, verses 15 and 16. The beast of the earth, the woman, and the false prophet all mean the same thing, and that is an apostate church in alliance with tyrannical civil powers, chapter 17, verse 3. Now, if the great city Babylon, a symbol which comprises the whole anti-Christian confederacy, has been utterly destroyed as appears in the 18th chapter, whence come these enemies bearing the same characters? The only solution of this apparent difficulty is by supposing, as we have done, that this is a re-exhibition of what has been more obscurely symbolized, chapter 14, verse 20, chapter 16, verse 17, chapter 17, verse 16, chapter 18, verses 2, 8, and 20, in order more distinctly to point out the end of two principal leaders, the beast and the false prophet, the empire and church of Rome. Both these were cast alive into a lake of fire burning with brimstone. The remnant were slain. When the leaders were discomfited, the ranks were soon broken and the whole army melted away. They were slain with Messiah's sword, the emblem of his justice. Chapter 1, verse 16. Thus, Babylon has fallen to rise no more at all. All the visible enemies of the Lord and his anointed are cut off from the face of the earth, and it remains only that he who originated the rebellious conspiracy be, be, be put under necessary restraint. Chapter 20, verses 1 to 3. And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit in a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years, and cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set a seal upon him, that he should deceive the nations no more, till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that he must be loosed a little season. And I saw an angel... This angel is the Lord Christ, chapter 10, verse 1. The key is the symbol of authority. Isaiah 22, 22, chapters 1, 18, and chapter 3, 7. The dragon had been previously cast down from heaven, chapter 12, 9, by the Reformation, and during the short time of his liberty he persecuted the woman and the remnant of her seed on the earth. Now, however, his career is arrested, seizing, binding, casting into the abyss, shutting up and setting a seal upon that old serpent. Chapter 12, verse 9, are strong figurative expressions by which his secure confinement is signified. Thus is the devil to be restrained from deceiving the nations for a thousand years. That this period is to be taken in a proper and not a mystical sense appears thus. If we multiply 1,000 by 360, as some fancifully do... The resulting number of years, 360,000, would be out of all proportion to the past duration of the world, as well as the well-defined period of 1,260 years. Add to this that when by Daniel and John definite duration is symbolically mentioned, it is by months, days, 
times, times and a half, a, t- a time, or the dividing of time, never by years. At the expiration of the thousand years, Satan will be loosed a little season, little as compared with the thousand years, so little as not to be deemed worth estimating. Verse 4, And I saw thrones, and they that sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them, and I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus, and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads, or in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. And I saw thrones. Here there is no mention of heaven being open. Nothing henceforth obstructs John's vision. The darkness is past, and the true light now shineth. At evening time it shall be light. Zechariah 14, verse 7. And they that sat on them. Who? There is here what may be termed a remarkable chasm in the language of the text. There is no visible or proximate antecedent. Who are they who sit on thrones? Did millenarians only put this question and patiently search for the solution of the context? Agreeably to the allegorical texture of this whole book, all their hallucinations might be easily and happily obviated. The inspired writer assumes, of course, that the reader will readily identify those persons who are thus promoted to honor now that Antichrist is no more and society is to be reorganized. Daniel furnishes a satisfactory answer to our question. I beheld till the thrones were cast down. Daniel 7, verse 9. The Roman imperial thrones of civil despotism were subverted again. But the judgment shall sit, and they shall take away his dominion to consume and to destroy it unto the end. Verse 26. The Roman imperial throne of ecclesiastical domination shall be destroyed. Then when Messiah shall have put down all rule and all authority and power of both sorts of tyranny, the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High, whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions, rulers, shall serve and obey him. Verse 27. The saints of the Most High, according to Daniel, are to be exalted to civil rule, and these are the same whom John saw sitting on thrones. Now the effect of the seventh trumpet becomes a fact in history. The kingdoms of this world, which had been controlled by the beast, and bewitched by the sorceries of the lewd woman, are become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ. For in the millennial state of the world there will be a plurality of kingdoms, Hence, a very common petition of pious but ignorant people that the kingdoms of this world may soon become the kingdoms of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ neither will nor ever can be answered under the righteous and benign administration of the saints kings shall be nursing fathers and their queens nursing mothers to the church for the nations and kingdoms that would not serve her have perished yea, those nations have been utterly wasted Isaiah 49, verse 23, and Isaiah 60, verse 12. The souls which the apostle saw under the altar, whose cries for vengeance he heard, and who were directed to rest for a little season till the role of their martyred brethren should be completed, are here presented in quite a new position, sitting on thrones. Chapter 6, verse 9. Although they are not the same identical persons physically, they are the same morally. 
for the life of the two witnesses is commensurate with the reign of Antichrist 1260 years. This ends tape number 10 of Notes on the Apocalypse by David Steele. Please go to the next tape in the series and continue listening. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources as well as SWRB's complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, T6L 3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. If you have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. This book, Notes on the Apocalypse by David Still, is also available from Stillwater's Revival Books in soft cover format at a discount in our A to Z author listings. And please, don't forget to look over the 62 CDs that make up our Reformation and Puritan bookshelf CD sets if you visit our website at www. .swrb.com as these CDs are a great way to build a major reform library at a fraction of the cost of the printed books.